Welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast, fellow nerds. On this 17th episode, we are diving back once again into Matthew Woodring Stover's The Acts of Cain. The subject of discussion today is Book 3, Cain Black Knife, also known as the first of The Acts of Atonement, the duology that ends Stover's sci-fi fantasy series. I've said this before, and I will absolutely need to say it again, right here, right now. These books are violent. They are gruesome. They are beautiful. Before going on, this is your official warning. We are not going to censor this episode. After all, how can you censor an episode based on a book with so many delightful new phrases to add to your daily vernacular, right? So now that we've got that out of the way, I'm your host, Rob Santos. I'm joined once again by my ever-faithful co-host, Mr. Drew McCaffrey. How's it going? And we're lucky enough once again, everyone, to have Mr. Patrick McCaffrey with us today as well. Howdy, everybody. Top of the afternoon, gentlemen. How's it going? I say, rather. (laughs) Where are we going to start? Because this was uh, an interesting read, I suppose, is the word I'm going to use for that one. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It was definitely a bit of a different experience. Drew, start us off, man. Let's, let's uh, Let's get a bit of a recap. Yeah, so this book, you know, we, we've talked about in in the first four episodes covering Kane about how Heroes Die and Blade of Tychal are very different books from each other. They they fit overall as books in the same series, but they do very different things. And once again, we have a very different kind of book here with Kane Blackknife. And uh, so this book takes place three years after the events of Blade of Tychal, probably... Uh, <laughs> Probably. It's debatable. Um, but it, it follows two uh, separate narratives. Um, there's there's the one narrative that definitely takes place three years after Blade of Taishal, and that follows Cain as he returns to the, uh, the Bodecan, the site of his first famous adventure as an actor 25 years ago, and it's a very different place now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he goes through... Um, uh, a series of intrigues where he's chasing after his adopted Ogreloy brother Orbeck Blackknife, who uh, who has become the Quachar or the leader of the remaining Blackknife uh, Ogreloy, uh, despite the fact that the clan itself was almost completely destroyed 25 years ago due to Kane's actions. Uh, but but uh, Kane gets embroiled in several different conspiracies in the town of Perthens Ford, which is run by the Knights of Krill, who are these sort of, you know, warriors of truth and justice. They worship the sun god Krill. They're 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 superheroes essentially. They they're <laughs> crazy fast, strong, they have healing abilities, all this stuff. Uh, but they've enslaved the remaining Ogreloy. And so Kane is there to to find what Orbeck is up to and uh and and he Finds out there's an Onkanan insurgency that's been set up by Kirindal, of course, because she has to have her fingers in everywhere. <laughs> he finds out that Tapas, the uh, monastic Kainist with whom uh, Kane spent some time in the pit in Blade of Tychel, is now the undercover monastic ambassador in Perthens Ford. And, uh, and then he meets uh, Angvas Claylock, who is the new champion of Krill, uh, and she was raised three years ago, so right after Assumption Day, uh, when Kane killed Milecoth at the end of Blade of Taishal. And and at the end of this whole sequence, Kane is betrayed and is turned over, as we discovered, to a bunch of Artans and Akhtiri who run the Blackstone Mining Corporation. And 
is in turn given to the social police and brought back to Earth, where he offers to make a deal with the Board of Governors. And then the other narrative is the story of Retreat from the Bodekin. 25 yeah. years ago, Kane's first famous adventure, how Kane became Kane, how he destroyed the Black Knife Nation, um, how he met Arturo Kohlberg and, and got his real uh, star career off the ground and all of this. Uh, but the way it's framed is that this isn't just telling the story of Retreat from the Bodekin. It's somebody actually watching Mm-hmm. Retreat from the Bodeca. The and they're version, fast yeah. forwarding and and mm. skipping sections. And at the end of this book, the impression we're given is that it was Rababal, who was one of the other actors on Retreat from the Bodecan with Kane, presumed dead at the time. Rababal. He's not dead. And his his real name is Simon Fowler, and he is in charge of the Blackstone Mining Corporation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a that's a pretty succinct. Uh outline there thank you because i i have to start this off again uh by saying that i well i'm back to work now i'm working 60 to 70 hours a week i'm gonna i'm welding the entire time so i'm back to listening to audiobooks unfortunately um it's good on one hand because i mean i have 11 12 hours a day to just knock books out of the way i can knock the largest book out of the way in just a couple days now but unfortunately there are there is a little bit here and there that i'm kind of not hearing I'm, i'm not catching up on or picking up on, I should say. So I really appreciate the uh, that primer that we got there, Drew. Yeah, uh, and especially with Kane Black Knife, and and you'll see even more so with Kane's Law, Book Four, the the second act of Atonement. These books get a little wonky. They get a little hard yeah. to follow at uh, points. Yeah. <laughs> um, there there's some new things Stover's doing in this. Um, for one thing, he for the first time, you know, we we talked about back in Heroes Die. And Blade of Taishal, how Stover does interesting things with point of view. Yes. Where uh, we have first and third person point of view uh, chapters, and and usually that indicates like like third person in Heroes Die was Hari back on Earth, and then first person was like first person present instead of third person past, and it was Kane monologuing while he's on Overworld, while mm-hmm. he's connected, you know, to the Thought Emitter, and obviously that's kind of changed a bit now, but in this book. We have a new phenomenon where, for the first time, Matthew Stover is using the second-person point of view. Yeah. And we have one, maybe two, maybe three different characters talking to Kane in the second person. Yeah. Uh, it's not entirely clear. Uh, certainly, the book starts off with Milkoff mm-hmm. talking to Kane, But as the book goes on, there are points where it's like, is this still Milkoff? Is this... Uh, the outside power, the Dil Talon, that uh, the the Black Knife God, with whom Kane was connected way back during retreat from the Bodekin, is this maybe Rababal talking to himself to Kane as he's watching it? Like there there are weird things uh, going on with this, and then even more than that, there are weird things with time that happen in this book. Um, Specifically, atop uh, the purific apex of the spire, yeah, in the hand was... of peace, and and this is actually a carryover from Blade of Taishal, where that final scene when when Cain kills Milkoff is written in this uh, infinite now kind of yeah. 
time frame. It's it's I do this because I have always done this, and and that's brought back a couple of times in this book. And as we find out now, it is the result of the direct touch of a god. So, there are wonky things happening here. I can definitely sympathize with the difficulty of tackling this particular book on audio, especially for the first time. It was confusing Um, as shit, yeah. uh, For me as well. uh, Found myself asking, what the fuck is going on? Where are the... And, like, what? And it's it's not just the fault of the audio book. Like, the narrative is, as has been said, is wonky. It jumps hither and thither. Yes, um, Stover not isn't... a patch on what's coming in the, <laughs> in the next. But, oh, but, really? Uh, it's like a it's like oh, this, is a warm crazy, up, this is the warm up round. It's the tutorial. Yeah. Ah. Well, it like, establishes, like... <laughs> but it, it, the book actually one of its purposes in my mind is to establish some of the conceptual themes of this jumping uh, around in time and the uh, the eternal now. Yes. And, uh, yeah, and and so. Okay. Uh, as, as we were talking a little bit before we started recording, when we were deciding uh, where we're going to chop Kane's Law in half, because we're going to do two episodes for that, uh, we were talking about chapter names and how the chapters in Kane's Law aren't numbered. And what they are is, is they have sort of chapter titles and chapter subtitles, and most of the chapter titles repeat. And one of the main repeating chapter titles is called The Now of Always. Oh, and really? that is this this sense, this eternal now okay, that okay. we're talking about, and and uh, and there are other things like yesterday's tomorrow and tomorrow's yesterday and things like that, and uh, and and then my favorite, there are several chapters prefaced with "raining weird." <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, which which is actually a, a cane line back in Blade of Tai Shao where he really? talks about it's raining weird. Uh, huh. During the during the final like the social police attack on Ankana, and yeah. and all the craziness that happens there, he talks about how it's raining weird. Huh. And well, so, so what what Kane Blackknife does is is it's easing us into this really high concept uh, like meta timeline deal that he's he's building toward in the culmination of this series. And this is where I'm talking about. It's a very different kind of book from Heroes Die or Blade of Tai Shao. Huh. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll admit that. I mean, like as Patrick was saying, there were plenty of times during the audiobook when I was sitting there having to rewind. I was like, "What? Hold on! It's it's only been 30 <laughs> yeah. seconds since I clued out, and now I have no idea what's happening." Um, mm-hmm. it, Stover's not really one to give you a lot of context before kind of throwing you into a scene. Um, you no, kind of have to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he yeah. gives you information on a need to know basis, and uh, that's of course you know assuming that you are following along closely, which is and, kind of and hard. Especially to do. in this book where yeah. we compare, you know, the length of Heroes Die, which was you know a reasonably solid what five hundred eighty six hundred plus page fantasy novel. Sure, sure. And yeah. then Blade of Taishao, which is a Huge. monster like eight hundred and fifty page. Oh, yeah. Kane Blackknife is 323 pages in the paperback. Yeah, and when Drew told me yeah. that, I was like, oh, well, that's no problem at all. I'll be able to knock that out pretty pretty fucking quick. But then... Yeah, bird, bird seed. 
I mean, the audiobook is 14, it's just under 14 hours, um, if you're listening at, you know, obviously one time speed, but even though it's only 14 hours, I swear I must have spent at least 19 or 20 listening, because I had to keep rewinding again and again and again, and also when you're doing an in-depth, uh, you know, uh, analyzation of, for like, for a podcast, you spend a lot of time writing down interesting one-liners that you find here and there, uh, which of course takes a lot longer, um, we're gonna get to, get to a whole bunch of those later in this, in this podcast, in this episode, but I, I do want to focus like right now on, on what Stover accomplishes with uh, this narrative, despite its size. We get a much smaller, more intimate character study in this book, namely that, of course, yeah. of, of Cain. We spend a lot more time in his head in first person, which, depending on your artistic or even uh, intestinal sensibilities, I guess, it's it's either a good thing or a very, very bad thing. Um and I, will I admit, find it a good thing. Yeah, I, I like in, it. I, I definitely way. subscribe to Kane's brand of humor. Uh, you know, I, I love those dark <laughs> jokes. I love that uh, kind of irreverence with which he treats all of his surroundings. Um, but uh, I don't know. Like, Kane, we, we definitely got what I consider maybe uh, too close of a look at who he is. Um, there were some, some moments that I was left blatantly disturbed with what he was saying, uh, what he was thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it 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 was a little hard in areas. What about you guys? What do you think? Well, um, it was interesting to see the dichotomy between Kane then and Kane now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not going to go so far as to say that he was more innocent in uh, in Retreat from the Boadecken, <laughs> but he was certainly less scarred, and it showed. Yeah, Silver did a good job of that. Um, yeah, but it. it his character later on seems to me merely the uh, another step uh, down the, the the logic tree that he's been headed this whole time. So it wasn't shocking in any in any way. It was like, oh, this came out of nowhere, kind of a shock. It may it might have been slightly sad. Um, his okay. irreverence is is still poignant, especially with uh, the Knights of Krill. Yeah. Um, which is kind of a bummer in a way because the Knights of Krill uh, are start we're, we're starting to get some characters and some some ideas at least in the series that aren't just bleak and murderous, mm-hmm. but are actually like striving toward high ideals. And it's it's just kind of uncomfortable to see them shot down by Kane so yeah. vigorously. I suppose. Although I do find that it was refreshing how he. Despite the fact that he didn't want to like some of them, he still found himself admitting, like, no, you're a good guy. Yeah. Or, or or specifically with Ongvas, where he's he's honestly kind of blown away at how just pure-hearted and upright and heroic this woman is, mm-hmm. and how she, she really is the champion of Krill. Yeah, she leaves yeah. an impression on him for sure. She definitely does. Uh, yeah. Do you do you guys get the feeling that he admires these people despite their beliefs? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Of course. Absolutely. Some of the language he uses, uh, talking about Perth and Claylock, uh, at the end of this book, who is obviously a man, Kane does not get along with. No. Uh, is is nonetheless the language he uses to describe him is glowing in many ways. It's it's uh, impressive. It's uh, complimentary. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he turns around and <laughs> kills him. Yeah, 
It, yeah. So like, but that's Kane in a nutshell for uh, it, you know. Yeah. It's like Kane is saying, like, you know, these people that have these qualities that I admire are good despite their beliefs, whereas they might say of themselves they are good because of it, if they mm-hmm. admitted that they were good at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's an, uh, yeah, just another insight, is if we <laughs> needed one, into Kane's view of, um, yeah, really, organizations in general. Um, and it doesn't seem to discriminate between a government or a religion or uh, even an informal sort of group like a thieves guild. Mm-hmm. Uh, he yeah. just he doesn't buy authority. He doesn't buy uh, <laughs> the group dynamic. I guess he, he just doesn't agree. He's such a lone wolf. He's such a lone wolf that he he, I, he could never picture himself being part of such a thing. Yeah, he doesn't want um, to trap and, himself and, with how he's supposed to act. You know. And so, kind of on this idea of like where Cain stands as a person in in contrast to the these people around him, uh, I highlighted one point when he had been pulled in the middle of retreat from the Bodecan, and he meets Arturo Kohlberg. And oh he's yeah, negotiating with Kohlberg about that was a bummer what they're gonna do to continue, and uh, and and he's talking about um, he says. Basically, he says, "What was the chance? What was the part that made you decide to pull me to take this chance on me?" And there's a little bit more. And he says, "I bet I can tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't when I was making that speech about being legends. It wasn't when I sold everybody on the die fighting crap. It wasn't even when I went out alone and fought Spearboy. None of that hero shit." And then heroes sell, Michelson. Sure they do. Hell, I like them too. What's not to like? You can't piss without splashing a hero in this <laughs> business. But you weren't out pimping Marades clips, were you? I'm not one of the good guys, Administrator. I am what I am. And this is a remarkable uh, statement by Stover, more so than Kane even, oh. that shows just how ahead of, ahead of his time Stover was in writing this book. What Kane just described right there, that is the reason why Grimdark Fantasy, why George R. R. Martin and Joe Abercrombie and Steven Erickson and Mark Lawrence and like the list goes on and on and on, why these guys are bestsellers now. Because everybody was so tired of just heroes, 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 heroes down the line. And Stover was ahead. Stover was the first one to write an anti-hero like sure. this. They had hero and, fatigue. And bring, and bring this, like, really gritty... And, and I will say, I'm not saying he's, like, the first one to write an anti-hero ever. Sure, not yeah. I mean, there were plenty of... There, you know, Conan the Barbarian and, like, El, Elric and, and uh, Tom's Coven and all this was before him. But but he was the first one to write a, uh, an anti-hero in this grimdark style. And if this... If Heroes Die came out five years later... Matthew Stover is on everybody's lips right now. He probably has a TV show. Like, <laughs> Acts of Cain is one of the best-selling, you know, uh, fantasy series, sci-fi fantasy series of the 2000s. Like, he he just was too soon. But he understood this uh, sentiment that was growing in the fantasy and science fiction community before they kind of realized it themselves. You know, I've heard you say uh, a lot of the same thing uh, in this very podcast, too, about... Um, oh, no, it wasn't about another author. It was during Heroes Die, probably. What am I thinking? Yeah, no, it was, it was still Stover, actually. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> never mind. Uh, Pat, you're about to say something, man. Go ahead. Well, it's very apropos of Brandon Sanderson at oh, the sure. end of one yeah. of his books to wax about 
uh, how important artistic timing is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, coming from a person who Sanderson's kind of catching everybody on the rebound in the sense that we've we've done our dalliance with yep. the anti-heroes, and mm. now we might want something a little bit more along the traditional like, lines again. Listen, yeah. I've taken so, my lumps. I want that fantasy again. I want that field of roses of which I spoke mm-hmm. growing in between fields of manure, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, not that, not that Sanderson is a field of roses. No, I mean, he's got his own, yeah, he's got his <laughs> yeah, own yeah. Uh, little bits and pieces here and there that, that can be a little exasperating uh, as well. But uh, getting back to Kane, I want to focus on what a piece of shit he was to start off. Um, like I have, (laughs) like I, I got, I have this quote here, right from the, from the very get go. Um, I I wrote down, of course you can tell, you could probably tell that this was written down in the moment as I was reading the scene, but I wrote, uh, so here's the scene. What the fuck is wrong with me? In some shit rotten depth of my cesspit heart, I want the Ogreloy to trap us here. I want them to hunt us through the ruins, to catch and kill and eat these men and women with whom I have eaten and drunk and joked and slept, to catch and kill and eat even me. In this stark mirror, I finally recognize my face. Things just aren't ugly enough yet. I want this to get all the way worse, to go so dark that it erases the memory of day. And that's in the chapter called Maximum Bad. Yeah, like, that is right, as soon as you dive into this book, you're getting this. It's like, I mean, okay, if you're used to Kane at this point, it's not really that that much of a surprise, but it's like, god damn, what a note to start this book off on. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that wins him an honorary spot in... Groups like the Forsaken or the Ten Year or the Nazgul, just just on the merit of in, its malevolence. It's and, and speaking of like starting the narrative off on like on this note, I want to actually focus for a second on the very first sentence of the book. Uh, it literally starts off with, "Hold on, I have it written down here." Um, the first line, the dirt-colored clouds spread wide, hugging the horizon, draining into the hollows of the distant hills. You know, as I've come to expect with the Acts of Cain, our return is leaving us kind of feeling unclean, if that's the word I want to use, after mm-hmm. what are literally the first four words of this book, the dirt-colored clouds. I mean, yeah. it kind of just instantly says, like, yeah, it's basically like a welcome mat that says, welcome back to the shit, you know? Yep. <laughs> welcome back, fuck you. Yeah, welcome yeah. back, fuck you, you know? Have fun. Yeah, and and so with uh, kind of kind of going back to like a, a a higher level look at this book and and what it does um, and how it differs from the previous books in the series, where Blade of Taishao was a uh, just relentless breaking down of everything that Kane is. Uh, this book is like a love letter from Stover to Kane. It's it's Kane unbridled. It's Kane getting to do everything that Kane wants to do, and and it, he has all the agency in this book. Whereas in Blade of Taishal, he was constantly hindered and constantly restricted, and here we see him just running free. And I mean, absolutely, <laughs> it is. It was fun leaving was carnage fun. in his wake A at every time. turn in both narratives, and 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 it's. <laughs> Again, kind of a commentary on what what we are as consumers of this media, that it's so much freaking fun. Like, yeah. seeing Kane in his element and cracking wise every, you know, every turn and, and 
showing why he's so feared and respected and and why he became the star that he did and it's like like yeah it's entertaining but it also <laughs> makes you stop and consider yourself yeah. like you go back to his monologue on the sand of uh you know victory stadium at the end of heroes die when he when he says like i finally figured out who my enemy is it's you and he's talking to his audience but he's breaking the fourth wall too and he's talking to us as readers saying like you're the sick ones for indulging in this and and wanting so badly to immerse yourselves in this and like and obviously there's there's a line drawn there there there's a difference between reading a book about violence and and you know and and all this stuff and you know first handing as it were putting yourself in virtual reality where you can literally feel the Mm. adrenaline of killing somebody and, and their blood gushing out over your fingers and, and stuff like that. Like that's yeah, that's another a level too yeah, much. Immersion. Okay. You, you just opened the gate to <laughs> what could be a very exhaustive topic. Oh, um, in, open in that the, gate wide motherfucker. Let's do it. Bring it in the, in the realm of fantasy. Now okay. you yes. said, uh, are the books we read, um, are they about violence or do they contain Yes. Honestly, violence. more and more, I think they are actually a commentary on that violence. Yeah, in this series, I grant it you, but I mean, I'm, consider the genre as a whole. Mm-hmm. Now, just because there's violence in a series does not mean that the series is about violence, of course. No, of course. Um, so that that commentary on us as readers has to be taken with a grain of salt yes. when we consider that if we're reading The Wheel of Time, there's plenty of violence in The Wheel of Time, but... It's, it's the struggle between good and evil, and the use of force in such a struggle is entirely justified. And this is why I think uh, there's a lot of grimdark fantasy that I don't like, mm. because it becomes about the oh, violence. Oh, yeah. Yes. The, <coughs> the violence is <coughs> the focus, it yeah. is the purpose, it is the shock value yeah. that that these you know, you things know, like I would argue Joe Abercrombie's that... First Law... Whereas, like, and even though the acts of Cain is super gruesome and it's tough, I mean, mm-hmm. and 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 Stover probably does go overboard at several points, like we talked about in our Blade of Tyshell episodes, but it's not about the violence. Yeah. He he is trying to make a point with it that I think is lacking in a lot of other grimdark fantasy. Well, sure. I would say of all the books in this series, this one is the one that is most about the violence. Yes. I would say I would agree with that. Um, really? But further, further more so the Blade of Tyshell. Well, I, I suppose yeah, the violence was still treated as kind of auxiliary to the plot in that book. It was a lot, a lot bigger. It had a lot more happening. I suppose with this book being as small as it is, you could argue the focus is that much more narrow. Yeah, okay, I, you know, I might be actually and, persuaded to come around to that way of thinking now that. And I, because I gave it some half thought. of this book is Retreat from the Bodak. Yeah, exactly. Which in in and of itself is about the violence. Oh, God, like the it whole was hard. Point. There, there was no story to retreat from the Bodekin, as we see very specifically laid out during that scene with Kohlberg and and uh, and Kane, where they talk about, like, the viewers don't care about continuity. Yeah, like, they don't care I, this, about plot holes. They just want to see more carnage. And this is like, something that I want to discuss later, because I have a problem with that, actu- with, actually, with that exact scene about how they treated <laughs> the, the, you know, the continuation of the plot at that point. Still didn't make much sense to me. It's uh, it's a cynical perspective, I think, because while he might be true in certain particulars, first of all, I don't like being 
subjected to this, hey, fuck you for reading my book, yeah. kind of an attitude. <laughs> well, well okay, Fuck you for making fine. me read your book, dickhead. That's how, you know. Um, but with, with, the other, with other fantasy novels in mind, the ones that are least about the violence are the ones where the violence is not directed at other humans. The ones where it is most about the violence, like Game of Thrones, um, though the most hardcore violence is human on human. The most mm. hardcore violence in Blade of Taishal is human on human. Yes. Um, that's where uh, this this specter of bloodlust descends on uh, on the reader, mm-hmm. because we can uh, we have ample justification in other works for cheering on the violence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a horde of trollocs is destroyed well hooray for our heroes that's yeah. yeah and and you think about going back to the rune lords which we you know just read a couple mm-hmm. of months ago how at times it can be so frustrating having gaborn being like almost pacifist like i can't use my powers to hurt people mm-hmm. he's like he's like i got i got it. it's all about protecting and and it's that's a little bit of an you know a wake up call for the reader too like like why why do you have this compulsion toward violence well it's expeditious i suppose <laughs> well, I, I, there's sure. certainly no arguing with, with two people fight and one of them dies the, the yeah, problem yeah. good or evil has been resolved like there is yeah, a, yeah, yeah. it is decisive i suppose yeah i say i really appreciate the fact though that despite you know the fact that this this book is a little more focused on the violence, it's a little more focused on the language. It, it, the humor really kind of counterbalances it. You know, Stover really yes. gets a chance to flex his. I, I really don't want to use this term, but his funny muscles. You know, he uh, <laughs> the the sheer amount of epic one-liners that we get, mostly of course from Kane, just kind of balanced out every moment. For every moment that I had a ugh, like a shiver, I also had a <laughs> kind of moment. You know, yeah. For for every paragraph that you have yeah. vivid descriptions of like Cain crucified by the black knives you have 20 scenes of Cain cracking yeah. wise at which of Krill by the way is like doing me no favors uh at work when you know every 45 seconds I'm sitting there cracking up over my welds and I'm screwing up my welds and the guys are looking at me like what is this guy's <laughs> problem like what is he I, I always have to see somebody looking at me. I just point to my headphones. Like, I'm just laughing about something I heard. You know, it's funny. <laughs> I, I promise I'm not insane in hearing voices. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> I uh, am hearing voices, but I'm not insane. <laughs> yeah, Kane, you know, I, I've decided, I, I decided it, since we're, you know, still on Kane before we actually move on to maybe any other characters, I do want to point out the fact that I think I nailed, uh, I found the reason why it is I like Kane as much as I do, despite how much of a piece of shit he clearly is. Yeah. What I like about Kane, uh, you know, is that if you if you subscribe to his particular brand of dark kind of gritty facetious humor, then he can literally make anything funny. Like even something as boring or mundane uh, as a walk through the supermarket would be hilarious if you're seeing through his eyes. And I don't think, and I'll add this, I don't think uh, Mile Koth really appreciates the caliber of the show that he's along on the ride for. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a, a valid point. Um... It, it, and and to your point about like moving off of Kane and toward more characters, 
I don't even know if we need to do that in this episode because yeah, this like, book is so thoroughly like we could, just Kane. Exactly. We could explain, yeah. no, I like this character. What do you think of her? What do you think of him? But for the most part, this entire book is just a character study of, of this guy who gives us so many reasons to hate him and so many reasons to love him. Yeah, and no. so one of the things that I, like, on I should say on my part, one of the reasons that I like Kane, despite the fact that I vehemently disagree with his brand of philosophy and his moral code mm. is that he's at least self-aware about it <laughs> he's there there's a good line um uh late in the book where he's talking about perth and claylock and how uh uh claylock um challenged him you know above the the cliff and and uh and it was because he was calling him names basically yeah. um and I have it highlighted here. Yeah, that was uh, near the very, very end, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, I remember the so, story. So it was... Um... While Drew's finding that, oh, I just want to point well, out that... While you're looking... Discussing well, other characters is kind of um, difficult because so many of the ones we talked about before are dead. So we can't... Yeah. We can't discuss where they're at now as far as their development goes because yeah. well, the arc of their destinies came to a sudden conclusion. Yes. While you're looking that up, Drew, uh, I, I just to, to support that exact same uh, point that you just made, I want to go back to the quote that I uh, read earlier from Kane's point of view near the very beginning of the retreat of the bo- from the Bodecan when he refers to his own shit-rotten cesspit of a heart. I mean, you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. He, he is self-aware of this kind of <laughs> very bleak outlook on life that he has. Yeah, so I have the quote here, and he says, Here's the truth of Perth and Claylock. Under all his truth and honor and devotion to justice and noble reluctance to whatever, when you get to the bone, why exactly was he getting ready to kill me? For calling him bad names. Yeah. Yes, I am a bad man, but I've never been that bad. Perth and Claylock, the perfect knight, one more blood-drunk thug. And yeah, fine, blood-drunk thug should be carved on my own headstone. I don't claim to be better than him. But it does still chap my ass a little that everybody claims he's better than me. <laughs> I have my own vanity. I don't kill for it. That's all. Yeah. Like, it, it's there's definitely a self-awareness there where he recognizes, like, look, I don't stand for truth and justice and all this stuff. Like, I... But I've long since kind of reconciled that with myself, which I don't necessarily agree with. And, this, like, this is where his philosophy sharply diverges from my own. Like, if you have that self-awareness... You don't just say, oh, well, that's who I am, and, yeah. and keep being a piece of shit. Oh, the shenanigans. Like, you should be working to make yourself better. Okay, but... in your antics, you know. I, yeah. I see. Um, but, but he's at least self-aware, and that makes him more sympathetic for somebody, you know, a, a normal person like me. Sure. You yeah. know? Now, now, here's a question about that quote. Do you think Kane is correct about his interpretation of Claylock's character Ooh, i do think he's correct because there's the other um there's another quote that i have highlighted i think he's oversimplifying it but maybe perhaps i don't know so so when back at the very end of retreat from the bodekin when perth and claylock tells him to leave and he gives him the horse and kane talks about like i thought you'd want to challenge me again and he says i was only an hour outside the camp when the studio pulled me Two days later, before I even got out of the hospital, I finally realized why Claylock didn't re-challenge. He challenged me for calling him a coward. Get it? He was afraid he'd lose. Again. 
we can forgive any crime except the murder yes. of our illusions. I have no that line written down here. That's one of my one-liners that I have written down that I wanted to discuss. We can forgive any crime but the murder of our illusions. Or and, I'm and paraphrasing. that right there, I think, is the revealing character moment for Perth and Claylock. Sure, right? that, sure. That it, it, it vindicates Kane's opinion of him. Well, we're just getting Kane's take on it again like we're getting like Kane's accurate. take on it we're, but we're I mean this is Kane this is Kane's he, book though. I mean we know how Knights yeah. of Krill work and we know their their absolute conviction in these challenges and how if you lose in a challenge after accepting it, it's because Krill wanted you to lose yeah and he lost after accepting that challenge and he was afraid that he would lose again mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and that in and of itself revealed his own like inner uh inner issues to him, I'm yeah. very glad that we have a character, the current champion of Krill, juxtaposed yeah. to this uh, rat shit pretender. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Facetious. That's, he's the definition of facetious. He yeah. treats nothing with any kind of gravity. Everything is she, just a flippant, go fuck yourself if you think I give a shit about that kind of remark. Yeah, she she kind of gives the lie to the, the, the illusions argument because she, she is... Clearly, a person of substance, of, yeah. of virtue. So mm. I'm just very glad that she's in the book, and Kane respects her. Yeah, I mean, Angvas is one of my favorite characters. She's in this pretty whole cool. Series. She's pretty cool. And you know, we'll, we'll get more of her in Kane's Law, as you'll see. But, oh, but good. even just what her brief moments in this book, I really like the way she handles things. I like the way she handles Kane. Yeah, uh, the way she approaches him and she kind of calls him out on his own shit, mm. unapologetically. She's like, "This is how it is," and and you can you can try to do your normal bullshit, but it's not going to work on me. I do appreciate the the manner in which uh, Stover approached his writing of Angvas Claylock. You know, she's not a a a beautiful queen of battles. She's not uh, an immortal. Like she is. I mean, she's a very, you know, she's a battle-hardened warrior. Like, she, like he does blatantly, I, I didn't write down the exact description, but, uh, you know, you get this sense that she is not someone you want to fuck with at no. all. Despite <laughs> oh, the fact no. that she holds this righteous position as the champion of Krill, she, you know, a certain, um, you know, uh, measure of uh, decorum is, is expected out of her. But I... St- Still, I you could tell just through Kane's uh, in the manner in which Kane treats her, he kind yeah. of gets this sense as well. Like maybe, perhaps this is one person with whom I don't want to fuck. Yeah. And and there's even more gravity lent to that, considering he so freely fucks with other everyone of else. Krill, oh and, my god! And then even more so, he talks about like you know the Knights Venturer. Mm-hmm. That like we're talking about the ranks of the Knights of Krill and how he he pretty easily manhandled Turkild in yeah. the uh, you know in the the vigilry, and then he wrecked Perth and Claylock, a knight captain, mm-hmm. moments after seeing this guy like vaporize an Ogreloy's head with a morning star because he's just that strong and that fast with yeah. this like holy power that he wields, and then. Anvas is the champion, the champion. There's yeah. one of her. Like, and so when Kane is that willing to mess with guys who are just orders of magnitude faster and stronger and more badass than him, and then he's just he sees Anvas and he's like, Ooh, no. Perhaps I'll <laughs> tread a little lightly here. 
Go on, in, Pat. in essence, in essence, she is um, a paladin in any game that's been produced by Blizzard. Yeah. In other words, OP as fuck. <laughs> okay, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate that. Well, I mean, there technically wasn't a paladin in Diablo Three. It was named uh, Crusader, I think it was called. But I'm just uh, there, being... there was no, a paladin I mean, in Diablo what... Two, and he rolled fucking hard. Yeah, that, yeah. That's what oh, I had, the, I myself had a fucking hammered in that was teleporting through and getting fucking doing key runs and shit. I know exactly what you're talking about. Wow, yep. <laughs> I haven't thought about that game in 15 years or so. Holy shit! <laughs> you're welcome. Thank you, man. Yeah, and Matthew Stover too. Thank Fuck you. Yeah. But that's you know that's kind of a good point to make, like because the Knights of Krill are paladins, yeah. and and mm -hmm. as we see in many other you know. Uh, Series and, and things where a paladins are present. Paladins right. are not incorruptible. But it, just because you're a paladin doesn't mean you're automatically a good person. Yeah. And so we see that with the Knights of Krill, but we sure. also do see actually good people, specifically uh, Angbos Claylock, in uh, yeah, in in those uh, ranks. On an amusing, uh, somewhat side note, speaking of paladins, incorruptibility, and things that would totally fit within the, the world of Kane. The Paladins of Diablo 2, originally one of their design features was that they would eat the hearts of their fallen enemies to regain health and mana. Mm -hmm. But they decided to take that out as it would be a little gruesome. But yeah. I could totally see something similar occurring in this For universe. Sure. I, I mean, the Knights of Krill already have like blood rites and mm -hmm. things. and, and uh, um, But, but staying on the subject of Knights of Krill, and this is just kind of an aside... Um, I, I don't have much of a point other than to talk about the writing here. And because we haven't talked too much about how great a, a wordsmith Stover really is. Oh, yes. Um, he has several, several points in this book that his writing just blew me away. But uh, there's one scene when Cain wakes up after being healed from Turkild's beating. And uh, uh, Markham, Lord Tarkanon, is sitting, waiting for him to wake up. And the line describing him is... It's so simple, but it is so effective, and it gives you a, a perfect image. And it is, seated in a severe chair by a severe window was a severe man in severe armor. And I <laughs> love that line. I did like that line, too. I definitely did. It was uh, awesome. It was, it was like pretty it, good. It, it just gives you such an impression of what the Knights of Krill are, and their sensibilities, their aesthetic, and then... Markham's own appearance and own personality all in one very simple and line. How, how fucked up is this to consider? Because, you know, you, you let's take a step back and look at that, just that quote that you gave there, Drew, uh, objectively. You have this word repeated so many times. I can guarantee you that if somebody, if I was like in, I don't know, if I could go back to like sixth or seventh grade, back to like, you know, the beginnings of, hey, write a little story for English class and hand it in. If I had used mm -hmm. that phrase to describe someone, my English teacher back then would have been like, what the fuck are you doing? This is redundant, you idiot. That's, yeah. you know, yeah. C minus, right? Yeah, but exactly. when, when you know what you're talking about and you and you have all of this context with which yeah. to read this this statement, you really get to appreciate, as Drew says, that the, the caliber of a wordsmith that Stover continues to show mm -hmm. himself to be. Absolutely. He does, show, he does show himself to be sophisticated because the in writing, as with any art, that the best method is to learn the established way things are done. And then if you decide you're going to break the rules, then you are able to, and that makes mm -hmm. you sophisticated. 
Yes. Whereas if you don't know the rules and you break them by accident, you're just a barbarian. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that uh, Patrick Rothfuss actually described very briefly about the character of Denna in the King Killer mm. Chronicle, mm. where he actually it's written from, of course, from Quoth's point of view. And this is not a spoiler for the plot, so don't worry if you haven't read King Killer Chronicle. It's just the, the manner in which the character of Denna was described at one point. She, in her musical talent, the fact that Kvothe found her musical talent so alluring because she doesn't know the rules. And he described her as somebody who would, you know, simply walk through a wall because she's not supposed, she doesn't know that a door is supposed to be there. Right? So you, mm-hmm. you have, you know, a Stover on one hand who is doing exactly what Pat describes. He knows the rules, he's breaking them on purpose, and he's making a statement about that, I think. And then you have authors like Rothfuss who seem to, you know, write their characters waxing rhapsodic about, you know, the exact opposite. Yeah. Break, you know. Yeah. So Speaking of characters I can't stand. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, you know, way down the road. We'll yeah. That's, oh, way yeah. down the road. Um, but I, I do want to kind of uh, talk a little bit more about Kane and specifically yes. something that we haven't talked about yet throughout all of the acts of Kane so far, and that is, is he a reliable narrator? And... Uh, and he's mostly uh, portrayed as a reliable narrator in these books, but there were a couple of things on this read-through, and this is the third time now that I've read Cain Blackknife, uh, that I picked up on. And one of them was early on, and he's talking about uh, Delian. And he says, A couple of years ago, a friend of mine wrote a book that was supposed to be the story of his lives, or story of his life. You pick. Anyway, <laughs> he wrote that what your life means depends on how you tell the story. And that, he uses that in context to kind of justify his own Yeah, you think like, that's a bit of a red flag actions. there, perhaps? It, it is, because if you go back to Blade of Taishao, which is this book that Delian wrote, mm-hmm. that idea came from Cain in the first place. Okay, yeah, Cain yeah. Cain was the one who convinced Delian to, to keep going by telling him, like, you write your own story. And now he's then using Delian as an authority to justify his own actions. But he's just using his own philosophy. Like, he could still be plenty wrong. Does and then there's another... strike you as somebody who really needs justification? Even personal justification yes, for his, act- he, yes. for his he actions? He really doesn't want to admit that he does, but yes, he does. Okay, okay. It's, it's human. It's human to um, seek to justify when, when conscience comes... Uh, he's like a he's yeah. like a truly dickhead light song he says you cannot trust <laughs> me you cannot trust me don't depend on me i will fail you but he's in the way he approaches it is a lot more uh colorful if that's the word, <laughs> the word i want to use yeah so this other quote that i i don't really buy kane's uh, uh uh assertion here he says i came to overworld became an actor in the first place to taste the kind of power I could never have on Earth. Sure, wealth. Sure, fame. Adulation. And even some political influence. But all that was just perks, you know? The real prize was power. To ignore the laws that circumscribe the lives of Earth's undercasts. To live without law altogether. To bow to no law except my own will. But that's more abstract than it really was. When you get right to the bone, it was about being a god. To kill without consequence. And I do not at all buy that. That is eye-opening a little bit, I think. I, I absolutely do not buy that that was his motivation. You don't? Everything we've read from him before so this you, so says what that you is think not that, his motivation. So you think that he's actually being more cynical about himself than, than he necessarily needs to be? 
yes, I think he's he's uh, he's trying to present himself as like a deeper and at the same time more base uh, person than he is because we know like we we've seen through three books, including in this book, he did care about the fame. He was in it for the adulation. He was in it for the audience. That was why he became an actor. He wanted to be famous. He wanted to be a star. It wasn't because he wanted to kill indiscriminately. You see, I, it wasn't I got, because he wanted to be a god. Like I got the sense like, though that he was that he was now that he's older, he's able to look back at his motives and think maybe I was lying to myself back then, and perhaps, you know, the older middle-aged Harry Michelson is actually, you know, the one who is starting to realize that maybe his past self was was lot was the unreliable narrator mm, i i don't get that impression because no? he was still he still acted like that in heroes die when he was going out of his way to not kill people well speaking of his past self um i do want to discuss who he was when he started this whole journey of, of who he was going to become uh, mm-hmm. he, like it's it's really fascinating to see a, a young Kane in his prime. I mean, we we already seen a young Kane, of course, at the beginning of Plate of Taishal. But we now in 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 this book, what we see um, during the then timeline is we see uh, how old was he then? 25, 26, 27? He was twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven. Twenty five. Yeah, like he was in his mid twenties at that point, and he's starting to really learn what it means to take lives. Like for example, um, this is a scene I wanted to discuss uh, in particular: the death of Stalton. It was mm. it was a Oof. hard it was hard to read, um, not for the content that you know at this point we're used to, but for what it does to the man that we've seen up until now, treating death and gore and pain like old friends that he just can't seem to get rid of, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I have a quote here from that exact scene um, as he was you know having unfortunately to deal that fatal blow to Stalton to just you know kind of save him from this pain of this gruesome death. He said. I've killed men before, but I've never killed a man who's real to me. He like who's a person, a guy I like, mm-hmm. a man I wish could have been my friend. And I want to focus on the fact that he said I've never killed a man who's real to me. So, what are we supposed to glean from this? That everybody he's seen before that he's killed, of course, he's killed men before, just isn't real to him. He doesn't consider, you know, on equal standing. Yeah, he he saw them as less than human. Yeah, and now that he's in the shit, literally and figuratively, I suppose he's starting to realize that everybody he kills could have a story like Stalton, I think. You Mm -hmm. know, everybody, like, there is no, (laughs) there is no uh, just faceless evil. That all of his choices are a consequence and they are directly affecting other people. Um, So I, I, I thought it was really interesting to see the beginning of that journey. And I don't, I don't have the line here, but it continues after that when he's talking to Rabobal as Rabobal is having his like last yeah. stand and he's going to commit suicide and, and King thinks to himself, at least I don't have to kill him too. And he <laughs> thinks like, will it ever get any easier killing somebody that I like? And then wonders, am I horrible for mm. hoping that it will get easier because yeah. I anticipate having to kill more people that I like. But we reach this kind of really depressing point in his character arc by the end of it where if that's the case where he's like getting a sort of a self-awareness with killing throughout retreat from the bodekin where he's, he's recognizing the ramifications of taking lives it ends with him still throwing firebombs into the ogre cubs pens and 
yeah. absolutely exterminating the entire Black Knife Nation. That and, was hard to read. Oh. And 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 you have Tazar, and and she saw it. She was furious with him. Well, it was she knew it was Marad. She knew, wasn't it? That, that was he, more well, pissed off at him than. Hold on, no, that no, doesn't matter. Tazar. Sorry, Maraid was in. She was still uh, uh, chained up in the Oberlin oh, camp when he started throwing fuck, the firebombs. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's it's kind of a you know we reached a full character arc with Kane in Retreat from the Bodecan, but it didn't necessarily end up in a good place. Oh, that that it didn't. <laughs> that it didn't. So I don't know. But, um, I I do ahead. have like a couple more things that I want to talk about. Oh um, yeah, that before are, we get to our like favorite sort of. Yeah. Um, the. Uh, continued use of real-world literary references. Oh, yeah. This uh, is, we got I a lot a of, like, Heinlein in the first two books. And then in this one, uh, Jonathan Fist. He, he uses Jonathan Fist as his pseudonym. And he repeatedly mentions, like, Jonathan Fist also made a deal. And then at the end, uh, when he's talking to Simon Fowler to rob a ball in the Buchanan, you know, social... Correction Institute or whatever it's called, he says Jonathan Fist, and and Robobal's like, uh, I don't, I don't know. And he's like, oh, it's originally German, and he's like, what? And Kane scoffs and says, man, nobody reads these days. Yeah. What he's referring to is Faust. The okay. the classic, okay. uh, like Faust's deal with like uh, Mephistopheles and and his flawed deal with the devil, essentially. And and that's what this literary reference is. And then there are more references. There's there's more um, a heart of darkness in this book. There was a little bit of it in Blade of Taishal. Um, again, talking about like Kurtz and and like how he went insane and and how the jungle is within all of us. Uh, but I I liked that a lot. I yeah. I like that he Stover's capable of writing a book that is a rollicking action adventure packed with comedy and and you know all that. And at the same time, he can retain like high concept, um, uh, like narrative devices, and tie in, like, you know, classic literature. Yeah, into it as well. Like it's yeah. it's really impressive what he does with the writing of these yeah. books. I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I uh, when I, I say read when I heard that line that you're referring to, Drew, uh, when. Kane just makes that offhand comment like nobody fucking reads anything anymore. I was uh, <laughs> I was at work and I was I was I had the plier the welding pliers in my hand and I was fixing a, a wire that had gotten stuck in, in in my little gun and the boss was walking by and I remember hearing that line and thinking oh uh, Kane is saying nobody reads anymore. This is probably another reference to something I should check it out but I couldn't pull up my cell phone at that point and of course I forgot all about it until now you're just bringing that up but I did pick up on that line there and there are there is a point that I wanted to make about the uh, the references that Stover makes to, you know, 20th century uh, literature in this book. And my point was mm -hmm. this. Why are the only writers ever quoted in sci-fi timelines from the 20th century? You know, is in, in for example, the Acts of Cain is not such a big plot hole because you're dealing with the year, I think it's like 2190 um, at, in this case. But it still seems to be a thing, and in, in, in I'm making an observation now about sci-fi in general. Uh, you know, in novels... Okay, take the Halo novels. 
for example, or uh, the Illuminae files, to mention a couple, you know, series that take place supposedly centuries in the future. The only quotes that we get are either quotes from their present or from the 20th century. There's, there's, there doesn't appear to have been any notable people throughout the 21st or the 22nd or the 23rd maybe, century. Maybe the authors so, don't have the hubris to invent classics like, I get of their that own. writers in our you, time sometimes guys, want to quote you totally should. You know, other uh, real I, individuals I or events. But you, know. you have a point here, Rob, but I don't think it's valid for the Acts of Cain. Because sure, he yeah, that, that does yeah. invent some stories and books in the intervening time. Well, that's, we just gloss over them. That's exactly what I was actually getting to here. they don't mean anything here. to us. I said, sometimes, you know, uh, I get that writers in our time sometimes want to quote, you know, other real individuals or events, but at least balance those out with quotes that you can invent for the interim. You know, we're not mm-hmm. stupid. We'd still, we'd realize that those are still coming from you. I don't know. It was just a stupid little nitpick. But, and again, I, like I said at the top of this particular point, I, with the Acts of Cain, it's only 2190. It's not centuries into the future. It's not that far along. Andrew, you, you mean, I, you're right. Uh, yeah, that was just a little observation yeah, there, that, there I, that I made. Yeah, um, but but it, it is certainly a, a thing in a lot of other science fiction. Yeah, so very a writer from that. the 20th um, century said this, and then a writer from the yeah. 20th century said that. It's like okay, so <laughs> what about the meantime? You know, I don't know. It was just a little. I, I just did. I don't know. Just a little nitpick yeah. that I had. Once we read the gap, that oh, nitpick yeah. will be solved for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. The ancillary documentations. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Good. Uh, but but anyway, uh, do we want to move into our like favorite one-liners? And, Fuck and yeah, let's do that. I have a lot of these written because down. Because yeah. I, yeah. I really want to just drive this home. This book is hilarious. Oh, it's good. I mean, it is so funny. It might this be the up funniest with, fucking book I've ever read. Yeah, like this is absolutely up there with like Scott Lynch and you know. Uh, oh, I, Lies of Locke Lamora was pretty good though. Yeah. That's yeah, true. but but I mean. I mean, that's my standard for, for funny fantasy is, is the Lies of Locke Lamora and maybe Republic <laughs> of Thieves, too. As far as just, like, one-liners go, this is right there with them. I, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I actually think I like Kane, uh, Stover's humor a little more than Lynch's, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah, so, Rob, kick us off. All right. So, I mean, the one-liners that I have written down, of course, I mean, I have a few of them, but I've also picked my top three. Um so I'll, I'll list my top my top three favorite ones, and then we'll just keep continuing with ones that we really like, I suppose. Honorable mentions, yeah, if you will. I have a few honorable mentions. All right. So <laughs> my, my third place one, uh, it, it's an observation about the caliber of Kane's character. Because at one point, uh, Tehran asks him, do you have any idea how hard it is to kill a knight of Krill? And Kane just kind of looks at him. <laughs> yes. And I literally yes. laughed out loud while I was working. And I may or may not have screwed up a three-inch weld because of this one. Uh, Kane can turn <laughs> even total silence into an epic one-liner. But then, yep. of course, we get a bit more context for this later, which kind of makes it <laughs> no longer funny at all. Because you yeah, find yeah. out, you know, uh, yeah, that Kane has seen Murad's final cube. That's, you know, her final moments as she was ended by Baron. Yes. By the way, epic point about this i want to make later too but that was my third place one uh second place uh i would i will say is one we, that we got right at the very beginning when Ooh. uh you know the the ogreloy the black knives are well the black knife clan i should say is on its way to completely fuck their shit up and then kane oh. says to everybody else in the party he says aren't you hearing her let me translate we could rape their wives kill their grandmothers eat their babies we could ass bone their goddamn lap dogs, and nothing they do to us would be any worse than it's gonna be anyway. 
understand? This shit's lip deep and the tide is coming in. <laughs> and I thought okay, that was a- so Let's go, you, go ahead. You actually, I thought you were going to steal one of mine there and you, you did a different one from like the same scene. Yeah. But yeah, so what, what was your number one then? Uh, my number one <laughs> was, was a very simple one-liner. It was uh, while he and Murad um, were, they were, they were naked, they were in each other's arms and mm-hmm. he says he makes this this observation to himself. He goes, "Better roll over. If she touches my dick by accident, she'll think I pulled a knife." <laughs> yeah. That was my favorite. Fuck that. That may be the funniest goddamn fi- like single phrase I've ever fucking read in a book ever. That was I fucking la- I was in tears at work laughing my oh, ass man. off over the quality of that line. That was those gold. That was fucking gold. So yeah, those are my top oh. three. Okay, well, so my my top three, uh, my my number three is uh, that ending scene where the social police have uh, Kane, you know, wrapped up and they're trying to walk him off, and mm-hmm. and Kane does his uh, his manipulation and gets Perth and Claylock to to you know try to stop them. Yeah, this is legality is moot. One of the soapies said, Administrator Michelson is our prisoner now. No. If the stone tablets on which God carved the Ten Commandments could talk, they would have sounded a lot like Claylock's voice did then. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's good. That's, I love how Stover writes Claylock so much. Oh, it was great. Yeah. What, what are your yeah. next ones? Let's hear them. So my uh, my next one, I gotta I gotta pull it up. It's it's a long it's a long section, but I find it so hilarious. And and like maybe maybe this just tells you like how much I drink. But it's when when he's uh, drinking with Turkild and Krav McRedhorn, and uh, he's like slowly coming to the realization that he like independently discovered scotch. Oh <laughs> yes, I fucking pumped my arm in the air. Yeah, and he's like, "Wait, stop, both of you! Hot, staggering, fuck! Grill swill is distilled beer. <laughs> Give me that." <laughs> Like... <laughs> for those for those who have listened to a few like if anybody's listened to all of our past episodes you probably recall me hearing or me saying before i should say i love scotch i am a scotch well whiskey drink i'm drinking whiskey right the fuck now yeah, i yeah. love my whiskey i love my scotch so when i when i literally heard kane come to the realization that he was actually getting ahead of the curve and market and, and, and being able to fucking patent that kind of scotch i was like oh yeah. Yes. He's like Kane's like all preparing to like ship up Tanaran brandy barrels yep. and get like a whole why don't you, operation. Why don't going. you leave it why don't you leave it in the barrel for a year? And they look at him like, what the <laughs> fuck are you saying? Yeah. Oh, that was great. That that kind of um, dramatic irony was gold. Yeah, and so my, my number one is actually right at the beginning of the book. You you quoted that opening, the dirt colored cloud spreads wide, like that that line. Two paragraphs oh, later. Oh, oh, can I guess? Just uh, the subject, at least? Was the subject, yep. uh, fucking, uh, was the subject Sunsa? Yep. Yeah. So it says, I could quote Sun Tzu at her. Dust <laughs> high and sharp will be chariots. Dust low and wide is infantry. But instead I shrug and hand her them monocular. If Sun Tzu had ever seen infantry like this, he would have crapped his silk so fucking, fucking pajamas. pajamas. <laughs> yes! And I-, I have actually a point. About that line specifically, <laughs> believe it or not, as you know, just basically where it is in the in the book, the fact that we uh, that Stover manages to set the tone 
so well with that line because that was, I think, just two or three paragraphs in. That was on the first yeah, yeah. page, depending on if you're, you know, listening or reading on the audiobook or reading the physical or reading the electronic, I should say. But yeah, that was, I think, and I want to give that specific line a shout out for how well it set the tone for this book. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, Pat, do you have a, a top three? I do yeah. not. Okay. That's fair. That's Actually, fair. Because I am not as much of a fan of the humor. Interesting. As you really? guys are. Um, really? Interesting. Now, I did like the line about the the stone tablets. Yeah, yeah. That was that was good. That was basically the only standout <laughs> one for me. But my issue with it is that it's all kind of samey. It's, it's uh, like a, could, he's a one-trick pony. That. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, sure. It is. And and while sure. like Scott Lynch kind of suffers from the same uh, problem, uh, I he's... think the tone is a little <laughs> bit lighter in Scott Lynch, and so it works a little more for me. Hmm. So yeah, this is the exact problem that I have with some of Brandon Sanderson's characters, like yeah. Lift, uh, yeah, like yeah, w- yeah. like Wayne, uh, Cody from yeah. the Reckoners. You know, they they seem to it's a it's they're a one-trick pony. It's the same joke yes. again and again and again and again and again and again. The difference between Kane and Sanderson is Sanderson is it's an obvi- it's obviously a joke and he's obviously trying to be funny. I don't think Kane is necessarily trying to be funny when he says these things. He just says them because that's what he's feeling. Oh, and but if we happen to find it funny, well, yes, right there you, know, you just the, said good, though, good for us. You, right there though, you were comparing Sanderson to Kane though, not Sanderson to Stover. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you how much how strong a voice Kane has. Yeah, but it's what. Pat's 100% right on this. There's actually a line in this book. I don't I don't have the exact quote, but Kane basically says, like, I am not particularly noted for my sense of humor. Hmm. And like, that does, line yeah. in and of itself, like, made me laugh. Because I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? You make yeah. me laugh all the time. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but I do have a couple, like, honorable mention oh, lines fuck, that I have aren't a necessarily too. funny, Hell yeah. but are just, like, the were impact lines. Uh, one of them was right after Kane like set off the flaming giant arrow on the cliff above hell, pointing right to him, and he does the shout, the magical shout, and he just says, "You were warned," like <laughs> screaming yeah. this at the at the black knives. Like that was such a just ooh, yeah. Like man, like to see that on on screen, like that'd be incredible. And then the other one, and and this is, in my opinion, th- like this may be one of, one of if not the most hardcore impact lines in this whole series, is during Kane's conversation with Kirindal, and uh, and and That's he's he's trying to, to uh, to convince her to to not be antagonistic, and she says, "Why is this so important to you?" I shrug. Oh yes, Orbex, exactly my brother. The Black Knives are my clan. Oh, please, since when? I was adopted. You were the most pretentious, self-aggrandizing excuse for a... I'm serious about this, Kier. Remember what happens to people who hurt my family. And she goes, your adopted Ogrillo family? Kier. What? Faith is adopted. <laughs> yeah, I went, oh, that shit. And it's, when I read he that. He describes, like... like this whole time she's laughing, you know, in, in her in her like whisper, and it's always described as like a river of glass bells and glass tinkling and stuff. And after he says faith is adopted, the next line is the river of bells flash froze in midair. Yeah. It's That's... just like because you know in that moment you get exactly what it is Kate is saying. He's saying faith was adopted. 
and still. He doesn't even have to explain himself. Again, that's this is one of yep. these talents, I think, that Kane has as a character. Well, Stover expresses through Kane as a character. The ability to say everything with nothing. Yeah. Definitely. It's it's a testament to his talent as a writer. Yeah. Like absolutely. Sometimes he, silence he can is raise the, best the hairs on your arms with, with one innocuous line. Faith is, is adopted. A, this and is a you're just like example. holy shit. Totally agreed with that. Yeah. Um, there was a moment where something uh, there. And I, I again, this was a moment when like the boss was walking by the plant. The, the sorry, I should say the floor manager was walking by. So I was like, shit, I can't pull this out and write this down. But there was a moment where something incredibly terrible, or uh, it was gruesome, or it was cruel in some way. It was explained to Kane. Um, it, it was hilarious because in that in this moment, we're expecting like a big outburst from Kane or a condemnation or something in in uh, the way of any sincere reaction. But he just goes that's fucked and i just, I, I just that juxtaposition there was just something that I, again something that i think it's just i suppose it's an observation about humor as a whole that i've made when you set up an expectation like that and then you flip it so hard on its head it's just funny it's yeah. funny as hell uh, there's so many funny one-liners in this book like i said before this is the funniest book i think i've ever read uh, the lies of Locke lamora had me laughing quite a bit too uh but i still think this one this one takes the cake like for example uh a point when Kane said the champion of Krill wants to apologize and he equates it to something along the lines of it was like being offered a hand job from the Pope and I went oh yeah. <laughs> fuck I didn't even know it was possible to say something like that god damn so it, it's oh, funny what, one of my other uh, uh, honorable mentions is like just after that where he's, he's talking to her, and he's negotiating, he's like, I want authority. I want the Krill's blessing. And he says, your authority comes straight from Krill, right? That's what I want. I want freedom of action. Oh. Next time some asswipe Turkild takes a swing at me, I want to flip out the holy foreskin and yes, the holy foreskin. I'm working for God's own motherfucking <laughs> self. <laughs> and then how many references we get in the future of him whipping out that holy foreskin. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Kate, that we saw that holy foreskin so many times. I wonder what my family's thinking right now upstairs listening to me say the words holy foreskin over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make them read this book and be oh, like, there God. you go. But uh what yeah, kind of oh, books man, are still... you reading, young man. Yeah. I mean, there th th there were also a few callbacks that I really appreciated. You know, for example, there's fighting and there's fighting. I loved that. The, yes. the fact that we saw that oh. again and again after, you know, going without it for long enough. I, I just, you know, I thought it was an interesting stylistic choice. And I think that uh, Stover, uh, you know, he really hit the right note on that one. Um, but yeah, uh, let's keep talking about yeah, one. these one-liners. Yeah, go ahead. I have another one. Kind of on the same note as the there's fighting and there's fighting. Yeah. And it's it's when he's like back in the Bodekin after being recalled and he's using the knife to scrape off the healing mud. And each time the knife, uh, like, touches a scar, he records what it is. Mm. And he says, there are scars the blade cannot touch, but I don't need them. The ones on the outside are enough to tell me who I am. Fuck. Like, that's, oh, man, that hits home. Fuck. It's home. I don't remember that line at all, to be honest with you. Shit, that was deep. I mean, <laughs> I mean, pun intended, I guess. I didn't mean to do that, but, um... 
Yeah, yeah. no, I, I have, of course, the one written down that you mentioned earlier. We can forgive any crime but the murder of our illusions. Uh, let's see here. Mm-hmm. Oh, 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 yes. Uh, one of the moments with Murad in the same scene that I that I mentioned as my favorite, you know, one-liner in the whole book when he says, better roll over. If she touches my dick, she'll think I pulled a knife. In that <laughs> same scene, just before that, um, again, they're they're naked in each other's arms. It's, it's perhaps leading somewhere, you know. It is a fantasy adventure after all. And he goes, yep. hey, I've got an idea for a good time. Why don't I bleed to death on your lap while you outline my defects of character? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that one. I appreciated that one so much. It was great. You know, it, I, I, there's a moment where he goes, I'd say I was sorry if, you know, I was. I was. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good way to say that. Oh, this, I get this book yeah. is just, it, I get it's a lot like sifting for gold, I suppose. It's a very adequate metaphor. You know, you're sitting there shifting back and forth and just, again, nug, 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 nug. It's 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 so it's pretty good. Yeah, I, I also liked the one like where he's talking about this giant like fresco done of uh, Perth and Claylock's like heroic stand at, at oh uh, yes know, on the it, Bodecan and and he's talking about it and he's like I do not by the way appear in that painting. Yeah, <laughs> speaking exactly of this scene as if he needs to say it, uh, as if he needs in this scene. Um, in case we were going to actually explain oh our, our three favorite scenes on top of our three favorite one-liners, I actually wrote down oh. that one. That was fucking awesome. Claylock's yeah. last stand against the Ogriloy, and like it was so badass. After he launched him from that that kind of, I forget where he was, but it's from a very high point. Like he just fell. We I thought he fell to yeah. his death, but then he gets that moment a couple minutes later where he <laughs> looks over and he sees Claylock just in the river, just fighting, just bam, bam, bam. He's just knocking Ogriloy off of him like flies. I was like. I got chills. Like that was awesome. Was, yeah, was I mean, probably my favorite thing. scene, and this was like a like a double whammy of like a great line and a badass scene is when he actually kills Perth and Claylock, mm. and his hands are like strip cuffed, and he goes through this description of how like so social police strip cuffs are like impossible to break out. Like you can take a blowtorch to them or a buzzsaw, yeah. and it's not <laughs> gonna work. And he's like, basically anything that doesn't send out the coded electronic pulse that triggers the doohickey to rearrange the cuffs' long chain molecules is pretty much useless. They are not, however, designed to bind the wrists of a guy whose right hand can suddenly become roughly as hot as the surface of the sun. See, that's a, that's the <laughs> point, actually. It, it, tell me, this is something I want to get your opinion on. Perhaps this is just the pretentious fucking uh, science nerd coming out inside of me here, but the surface mm-hmm. of the sun is still not that fucking hot. It's about 5,000 degrees Celsius. It's about double the temperature of liquid steel. It's, I mean, the, the the core of the sun is like 40 million degrees. That's a whole other thing. But the surface of the sun, he, he I don't know. It just seemed like in that in that moment, I thought that was like a, meh, I don't know. Was that me being just a pretentious fucking... Uh, forgivable I mean, hyperbole in my book. Yeah, yeah I maybe mean, a bit of Kane's hyperbole. Okay, exactly I'll grant you like that. A, like an astrophysicist or something. Uh, well, and then again, if you think, <laughs> let's, if we really want to dive into the technicality, but this the social police would not have designed handcuffs that would um, be removed if you applied 5,000 degrees to them. Sure, they, did, they probably saw like to apply 5,000 degrees to their hands to free them because <laughs> then you'll lose your hands anyway. They probably saw that like, more. oh, 3,000 degrees, we're good, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's probably it, yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think we should, uh, I mean, if we have any like final thoughts, I know I have a, just a couple very small things. Yeah, same here. A couple final of draft. just very small things. Actually, I think we've gone through... Okay, so yeah. I mentioned uh, Baron really briefly earlier. Um, I just, I'm just i just saying mm-hmm. that I, I wanted to stop for right now and just make an observation that I want Baron back. 
because after learning what hmm. happened to Murad and Tazar, I want him oh. back just so I can watch him die again. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And my last, my very, very last thought is um, <clears throat> I actually learned another new word. And I think this is going to be something that I highlight every time it happens, just, you know, for others who might be learning new words here and there as well. I learned a new word in this volume. That is apostasy. A-P-O-S-T-A-S-Y. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's like, it's, like yeah, it's the like, abandonment yeah. or, or renunciation of a religious or political belief. Mm-hmm. So just, yeah, have a little bit played, of that. Every time from now on um, I learn a new word, I'm going to actually draw attention to it. Have you played uh, uh, Dragon Age? No, but my brother rants about that game. Apparently it's awesome. Oh, and it's, Danielle yeah, super does good. quite but, a bit too. But there's like kind of a religion built around well. like mages and, and Templar and stuff. And some yeah. mages who, who like flee the... The order of the Templar and and their rule are apostates. Mm, and I gotcha. apostasy is the, yeah. Um. But yeah. So I I only have a, a couple of short things. One of them is there's a line that he talks about horses very early at the beginning of this book. Horses. And he says, I don't even like horses all that much. Horses in general. All I can say for horses in general is they're a hell of a lot better than people in general. <laughs> now. This is a random throwaway line, but then there's more random throwaway lines in the middle of this book where they talk about somebody, it's when Tapas is talking with Cain okay. about her like record of, of him. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like that didn't happen that way. Like I used the blade wand to cut the tear punch, so mm. not some reverse color Kosal. She talks about somebody called the horse witch. Several times. And he's like, how could you possibly... I what, don't like, recall what? this. Yeah. Uh, recall it. And keep that in your mind. Oh, yeah. No. Law. Okay. Oh. For Kane's Because law. this is something that we, we are going to need to discuss. The horse when witch? We, w- the horse witch. Oh, that sounds like a horror movie. That sounds like something creepy. Ew. No. Um, that sounds like some Blair Witch. Get it away. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, but keep that in mind. Because they're... they're this is going back to my point at the top of the episode where I said, like, there are weird things going on with time in this episode that I'm like... Yeah, Kosal, what the I, fuck is happening I've with that? It's books. suddenly centuries old and it's there on in the hand and it's like... Yes. I was so fucking confused during that. That's, yes. Sorry, that's another point that I forgot to bring up. There were points in this book I was so fucking lost. The conversation with Kirindal, yeah. I was fucking lost. And the and Kosal appearing on the, t- mm-hmm. the in, in the hand of, of, of Krill, is yeah. what they're calling it. Yeah. Uh, what the hell? Uh, so you're telling me this is explained in Kane's Law? Kind of. If you can get Just your head kind around of? it. So I, I've read the first three books in the series three times, okay. and Kane's Law twice. I'm pretty sure I understand all of it. <laughs> okay, so it's not... Okay, the, I thought this, you meant like it would just do... It hints. is no joke when he has chapters named Raining Weird in the fourth book. Like... Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, but so that's just something okay. to keep in mind. Like, okay, keep cool, cool. The the horse witch and, and horses and things. Oh man, it's still every time you say that, I get the shivers. Um, the but my last point, uh, which I think is is kind of a good segue into our our uh, conclusion here and and all that. There's a reference in the middle of this book that I just caught for the first time. Oh, and he's talking to uh, Kohlberg, and he says, "When I was maybe ten or eleven years old, I met Nathan Mast." You know who he was? And through context, we find out Nathan Mast was a famous actor, like, back in the day. He was uh, Jonathan McKemby's sidekick. Like, he was he was a big deal actor. I don't know any of these names. 
So you you don't really need to. They're they're like Raymond Story and Jonathan McKenby are like the the original superstar actors. From oh, Avengers in Stover's universe. I thought you were talking yeah. about actors that we have no, 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 on our. No. Oh, okay, sorry. That's where my okay. You're good. I got you. And so he says, when I was maybe ten or eleven years old, I met Nathan Mast. Okay. Now there is a very hard to get your hands on Stover Kane short story called In the Sorrows. Oh? That is about this. Oh. And this is something that I think we should read. It, not not immediately. Okay. But I think sure, we should sure. read it at some point down the line and have a podcast episode on. And that brings me to my next big point, our announcement. Uh-huh, yes. We are setting up a Patreon. Yeah, uh, we are. By the time you guys listen to this episode, uh, it will have been live for a while now, but mm-hmm. we we are setting up a Patreon, and one of our uh, donation levels is going to give you access to uh, short story, short episodes that Rob and I do together. Yeah. They're going to be probably 20, 30 minutes long, much, much more uh, consumable than our monster hour-plus regular episodes, <laughs> but... I think we should very much do In the Sorrows for one of these Okay, episodes. yeah, add it to the list. I mean, if it's if it's Stover, I'm down. If it has anything to do with Kane, I'm down. Yeah. Yeah, for so, sure. Uh, so, yeah. Do we want to head on into the final draft then? Hell or yeah. Do you, or do you have something else to say there? No, um, I'm pretty much done with everything I needed to say. Um, we could head into Sweet. the final draft. I could even kick us off because I've got, I'd say that probably, probably the least exciting uh, of our choices <laughs> today. Um, I mentioned earlier the... I was drinking whiskey. Um, what I'm drinking right now is Alberta Premium. I decided to forego beer this week because beer just makes me have to go to the bathroom again and again and again. It's I can't. I just <laughs> I can't. Oh, so dude. I decided to stop. I decided to stop at the uh, the local liquor store and I just got some Alberta Premium Canadian Rye whiskey. Uh, this is something I've been drinking for a couple of years. It goes down smooth. I just drink it, of course, with a splash of water. Neat, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah, you know. I'd recommend it. This is this is a very safe whiskey to fall back on. <laughs> well, you know, Rob, for someone with a bladder the size of a gumball, I can sympathize. With, uh... <laughs> a bladder the size of a gumball. I like that. No, no, but seriously. I also really there was love beer. and this this may be a little TMI. Pat, we'll edit this out if we need to. Uh, there was a Halloween party I went to where I had two beer. I think I was 18 years old. I had two beers. I pissed five times. Impressive. <laughs> That's the kind of bladder I have. So doing an hour, hour and a half long podcast with a new beer every week, I'm starting to. Usually, I grab two <laughs> beers. Uh, I usually find myself struggling to keep it in. So fuck it. I just decided to go. Hey, less calories too, right? I'm going to start a, a you know a keto diet again eventually. So yeah, yeah. A bit of liquor, a bit of uh, Alberta Premium, just a bit of water. That's all you need, man. That's all you need. Fair enough. Sure thing. What are you guys drinking? All right. Um, I'm continuing on the tradition of trying to, as well, make appropriate uh, drinks for the episode. I am drinking (laughs) a black cherry Mike's Hard Lemonade. (laughs) Black cherry Mike's Hard Lemonade. (laughs) That's right. Oh, my God. Because this book is so black and Kane is so hard. (laughs) I appreciate that. Black cherry is not a flavor of Mike's Hard that I've seen here, though, so I'm definitely going to have to see that when I get down there. Oh, dude. It's probably the best. It's pretty dope. It's pretty good. Of the the series. If you enjoy this kind of, like... uh, Non-committal alcoholic beverage. Non-committal. <laughs> 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 then, uh, uh, you, you'll like it. Right. Oh, God. Drew, lay it on oh, us, dude. Uh, so I do not have a, 
uh, thematically appropriate named beer. Did you say thematically? But, but Sorry. thematically <laughs> okay. appropriate Sorry. named I've also beer. I've also been indulging a little bit on the on, <laughs> in smoking, so I'm fine. Uh, go, sorry, go but, ahead. But the content is very appropriate, and uh, you know I mentioned earlier one of my favorite bits in this book is Kane's gradual realization that Turkild has a mug of scotch mm. across the table from him. So I have a, an American brown ale from Crowhop Brewing Company, aged in scotch barrels. Ooh. It is a 12.8%. Uh, Damn. It's just a, just a, a whammy heavy. of a brown ale. It's super boozy. I mean, like, like if you, if you like whiskey, you're going to like this beer. I mean. That sounds it, like it would give yeah. me a headache to kill me. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. Nice. Nice. Brown yeah. ale. What the hell is a brown ale? Well, it's an ale. That is <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. Let it's, me finish. It's usually like... <laughs> I'm going to assume that that one has a murky color to it. You assume correctly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean... Um, it's, it's usually like kind of a nutty... Um, it's not super thick. Like medium-bodied ale. I don't know. It's, it's fine. Shit, add it to the list, man. But yeah, so next week, obviously, we're going to be diving into Kane's Law. Mm. Uh, we're going to be reading just about half of the book, uh, at least like on, on our Kindle version. Um, it's exactly half. Uh, I think it was uh, through, was it the Mockingbird Test is the name of Mockingbird the chapter we will test. be reading through. Yeah. So we'll finish the Mockingbird Test and then we stop. Yes. Good. Good yeah. to know. Okay. Yeah. And so this has been episode 17 now. 17 episodes we've had now. And for just future context, this is April 7th that we're recording. This yeah. So God knows when this is going to come <laughs> out. I think it's going to be like mid-June, late June, early July. Who knows? I haven't done the math yeah. ahead yet. So good. All right. Thank you for joining us, everybody. Yeah, I'm, I'm Drew McCaffrey. I'm Rob My Santos. Rob Santos and, and our special guest, Patrick McCaffrey. Thanks again, Pat, for coming on. Uh, my pleasure. I'll uh, see you guys when things get weird. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Have a good one, everybody. Bye.